HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch, our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And today, well, we're, we're in the turkey season, Thanksgiving time. And, you know, very often, um, I'm asked, not to, not to think about Thanksgiving, but I'm asked uh, by listeners, what is Heritage Radio Network? Why is it called Heritage Radio Network? So I thought that today I'd do a double-duty show and answer those questions as well as pay homage to our the national bird of the holiday the turkey and my guest is the one and only patrick martins patrick is the founder of slow food usa way back in 2000 and also the founder of Heritage Foods USA that brings us those wonderful heritage birds, the heritage turkey, heritage breed turkeys that you'll find at a lot of the gourmet supermarkets and online at heritagefoodsusa.com. And Patrick, well, I'll let him tell you the story, but he is the reason that we are all here on this radio network. And I welcome you very much, Patrick. I'm so happy to have you here. Take it away. Why is it Heritage Radio Network? What is the heritage all about? Well, I'm sorry, by the way, if I was a little late. Uh, this place is very hard to find. <laughs> uh, it's the first time I've ever been on a, a, a guest. Well, Oh, um, and I failed to mention, Patrick has a show on Sundays called The Main Course with Katie Kiefer. 
I've, it's very awkward sitting in this chair. Mm-hmm. It's a very nice chair. Gotcha on the spot. Um, so your question was why heritage? Why heritage? Where, yeah. What, why the name heritage? People want to know why heritage. Well, when I was running Slow Food USA, their biggest and most uh, galvanizing project was the Ark of Taste. And uh, it was a metaphorical arc onto which endangered food products were boarded. And the intent was by bordering it onto this metaphorical arc that those foods would get more attention, more people would eat them, the, you know, the farmers would produce more of it. They wouldn't become extinct. Right? They wouldn't become extinct. So um, they were only about 10 or 12 arc products boarded onto the U.S. arc during the first two years. But one of them was Heritage Turkeys. And the press release was like, Heritage Turkeys born to trot or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so it came from uh, that idea. Um, You know, those turkeys were called Heritage. And I guess it was like the heirloom of the meat world. And uh, we set out to sell those turkeys. And, uh, you know, basically, I mean, it's a long story. Slow Food was actually against me selling the turkeys. They thought it was too direct a connection to the farmer, you know, and it was embracing one farmer and not the general concept. Mm -hmm. They also thought it was dangerous to be selling something as the number one project of the year because it was a 501c3. Right. So what they... um, did is but you know on the other hand i was in charge of the organization and i needed to keep people becoming members i mean there were 200 when i started and you know 10,000 when i ended so we needed to really push and be interesting and come out constantly in the news so i needed uh you know of course in america everything is committee based so right. we start the arc here what happens 10 of the chapters start a committee the arc committee and i was like okay i'm happy to work with the committee that's not how it works in italy but let's do that here and you know board me some products now because we need to take these endangered products from the U.S. and start to create markets for them and push, find projects, find ways of moving them. And they partially because committees are just dysfunctional most of the time and partially because I think they as states kind of and us as the national government us and them you know us and them they were reluctant to give us too much oil in our machine to you know really make it run Mm -hmm. and, and be successful So, you know, for those very uh, interesting politics, um, you know, I was like, I'm not going to lose the number one project. So I will start a sales program for one of your ARC products that you have already boarded. By the way, Carlo Petrini, the founder of Slow Food, he agreed with me. He was like, board 10,000 products. They're on the brink of extinction. We could lose them tomorrow. Do not fight so much Sell about... Sell them. Do whatever you have to do, but save them. Well, and, and also I failed just to, mention to board Car- them. So Carlo Petrini, for, for the listeners who don't know, Carlo Petrini is, was, is the father of Slow Food. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very Italy. charismatic man. Yeah. He just wanted there to be a huge compendium, an encyclopedia of these endangered foods, and then we could move some off if they weren't right things but the point is we would have that encyclopedia would be the first step towards then going forward and launching projects around each one of those endangered foods and each food might need a different thing some might just need a single chef to embrace it other ones need a festival like you know peaches in georgia they Mm -hmm. might need a big event you know so every food needed something different so um you know when i started i actually no one knew i was doing this until everyone got the little turkey sales sheet and they were like he did it um, but then they feared, like I said, someone would get sick eating the turkey, all this and that. So they actually forced me to create another entity, even though I was still part of Slow Food, the executive director. So 
because they were called Heritage Turkeys, because Heritage Turkeys was our first venture. You know, I called it Heritage Foods USA because it was Slow Foods USA, and so that's how that started. Oh, okay. So there, so then Heritage, that's where the heritage came from, folks. <laughs> that's and the then, whole answer. Right. And then years down the line, I mean, obviously then you branched out into a lot of the other endangered uh, breeds of meat, and you branched into pork, and we'll, we're going to talk about that Well, a lot later. of those turkey farmers also raised other foods, and that's right. why, um, you know, they were like, could you also help me day-to-day with my pigs? Because, of course, turkeys are a, but a once-a-year right. food. Right. In fact, to the tune of 46 million. Americans will consume 46 million. I heard Adam Gopnik, uh, I think, mentioned that in his article in The New Yorker this week, that Americans consume on the average of 46 million turkeys at Thanksgiving. Wow. Yeah. And then think about how many turkeys the rest of the year are just in turkey sandwiches. Exactly. And all those turkeys are artificially inseminated because, of course, the natural breeding cycle of turkeys means that they're only ready to be eaten, you know, come November. Right. Exactly. They got to fatten them up right mm-hmm. for that time. All right. So then w- why radio? Well, um, Carlo Petrini had a uh, radio station in 1975 called Radio Bra. Onde Rosse, which was Radio Bra Red Waves. Although he denies it now, he was a little bit of a you know communist. He was certainly way, <laughs> way, way on the left. And uh, he started a radio station using a discarded transmitter that had been used in an American tank during the Korean War. Huh. And it was actually the second independent radio station in all of Italy. Um, yeah, because so, there were the three state, there were the two state stations, mm-hmm. and then it branched to three state stations, and then it branched mm-hmm. to Carlo. Yeah. Literally, no independent radio there, right? For Not a long in the time. 1970s, and they were trying to make the argument that the the government was that the radio dial had a limited capacity for radio <laughs> waves, which of course everyone knows is not true. So Carlo proved that wrong, and of course, you know, he was just broadcasting basically everything that was being broadcast on this network today. Um, and he would play rock and roll and his buddies would be, you know, come and, and broadcast. It was a very interesting station and they kept, uh, you know, the authorities kept coming and confiscating the transmitter time after time after time. So finally, the people in northern Italy, they just arrested him. They were like, this guy's too much of a pain in the ass. And of course, by arresting him, they put him on the national map. That's right. And yeah. everybody came to his defense. Dario Fo, who won the Nobel Prize. Uh, Roberto Benini, who was then an unknown actor. He mm-hmm. came. I mean, all these people congregated on this town and really helped you know, pave the way for Carlo to do all the great things that he's done with his organizations in Italy and also with Slow Food. So where have we gone? Well, uh, ostensibly, the radio, this radio network was going to be all about sustain uh, food shows, actually, mm-hmm. right? And sustainability and and, uh, and culinary history, and, because we have to talk about the history of the breeds, right? But I mean, you have, as Carlo did, you know, you play a little rock and roll, too. I mean, things have branched out. But you really what I mean, your purpose was really to help raise awareness of the sustainable food movement. Well, I mean, you know, I always used to like complain that like, for instance, that the New York times didn't put enough energy towards sustainable, you know, issues like in their food section. Now that's such a buzzword. We got back up and then explain initially what sustainable really means. Well, it's everything anti-corporate, you know, the organic food movement, the heritage food movements, biodynamic. I mean, you name some iteration, even parts of the vegetarian movement. I mean, that whole thing is all just what it's all united in is anti-corporate. And, uh, you know, it was anti-corporate in the 70s because they were putting pesticides in the foods. Mm -hmm. It was anti-corporate in the 90s with heritage because we didn't believe that we should lose all these, you know, endangered varieties of livestock breeds. We thought that was dangerous, but also just... uh, uh, conveyed a lack of vision 
you know, and the lack of culture, because of course these breeds taste so good. So, um, you know, we started it, you know, like I said, I was talking about the New York Times, you know, I was like, oh, they should only have articles about people like, you know, Zach Palaccio or Patrick Martins or Ann Saxelby. And, you know, how come they talk about these other things? And then I realized it, you know, it wasn't their job. You know, they were doing national stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, when they cover an issue, it becomes an international phenomenon. So they can't just pay constant attention to these things. Likewise, on the other end of the spectrum are like the blogs, you know, and those didn't really captivate us. So it seemed like there just needed to be this weekly steady pounding of these issues for anyone who cared to see it. And I just know if year after year after year, people like you came in every week that we would start, you know, turning the issues that are so important to us, like anti-corporation, not for the sake of being anti-corporation, but for being pro an alternative of small quality family run business, you know, that it needed a station. And it's kind of like a convoluted way of saying it all. But, you know, the sustainable food movement needed a steady mouthpiece. And it's really touching to look at the archives and see how many literally almost tens of thousands of people have come through this studio. Yeah, unbelievable. The, all the through guests. Jack. Yeah, Jack Inslee, our executive producer. If he weren't, if he weren't sitting there in that booth running this show, we we would not be on. Jack was the really air, used to so not to bathe. He weighs three hundred pounds, and <laughs> now look at him. He's an Adonis. This place has turned yeah. him into like one of the most eligible bachelors in the city. Well, that's. I mean, her- that explains the heritage, and it is such an important movement. And it has, like the net- like the radio network has blossomed, but the the. The heritage food movement, the sustainable movement, has blossomed as well, and sometimes going in directions we're not sure where it's going. It's been going since 71. You know, I really think Alice and the Berkeley crowd were those first, and I think uh, this crowd that I look at here, there's a staff uh, meeting of all the pizza chefs at Roberta's. Roberta's restaurant. This is kind of the center of a continuation of that. And now in the current administration, we have uh, Michelle Obama, who's really interested in, mm-hmm. in the gardening and getting uh, people, you know, kids and well, and, and children, especially if we don't start with the children, you know, we don't go anywhere. Right. And I, I am uh, her movement. You know, there's wanting kids to move. And by the way, I think the NFL's program of move 60 minutes a day is the best. I mean, yeah. I am so proud of them for taking on an issue that's you know, as simple as just get out and exercise. I mean, and you've talked about obesity in past interviews about, um, aside from moving around, but eating eating slow food rather than fast food, that, mm-hmm. that can help combat some of the obesity, which she's doing as well, planting the gardens and things. But for you, well, how, let's get down to a personal level. How, how did how did you, what made you get excited about food? Were you always excited about food or? My only connection to food, politics, other than that I tried to eat three times a day or more. Yeah, right, good. Um, as uh, Barbara Kirschenbach Gimblet was a mentor figure for me at the graduate program, a master's study program at New York University's Tisch School of Performance Studies. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a, a very, very interesting program. And she taught a course called Food as Performance. And she's so intelligent. She looked at it from every perspective, like time, you know, or aging or, you know, culture or, or taste. Uh, you know, we studied the tongue. I mean, it was literally everything. It was as as spectacle. Restaurant is theater. You know, mm-hmm. kitchen is, is hearth. You know, what's the hearth mean? We did a whole class on the hearth. Just such an interesting lady. So that was just actually I stayed an extra semester, even though I had already graduated, just to take that course. And then it was uh, that chance meeting with Carlo 
um, that in Italy, kind of, Italy and met, and yeah, met him. that you know, here in New York, and then I went. Oh, you, to met, Italy. Oh, you met him in New York first, mm-hmm. okay. and then I went and I moved there for two years. So it was really a chance meeting, but you know, I saw in the food world an opportunity for uh, doing good. You know, there was stuff that needed to be done, and it wasn't being done enough. So it provided me with an opportunity to push my entrepreneurial or you know creative buttons and and, and find find action and, and opportunity. Mm-hmm. Well, now, who do you go to and, and who do you get your information from to decide what what type of pig or cow or, now, now and we'll talk about the goat movement later, but a turkey, I mean, uh, is really a, a breed, an older breed worth saving or that was, you know, that is one that's maybe facing uh, extinction. Well, know? the good news is there are not that many of them. So, you know, it's not like there's, 2,000 pig varieties to choose from. There might be 16 or 20. So, um, and, you know, the other answer to your question is that we stay very consistent. You know, we work with the same group of 50 farms all the time. Now, and these are small farms. When you say small farmers, what, uh, how, how small, how? You know, like farmers who are able to deliver us, uh, you know, anything from 20 pigs a month to 40 pigs a week. So, you know, somewhere in that. So it's definitely not the 10,000 a week group, and it's definitely not the two pigs every month, and you're not sure when they're going to be ready, you know. Well, I mean, you helped um, popularize now part of the the food world's vocabulary, the red wattle Mm -hmm. pork. I mean... did a farmer come to you and say, I've got this great pork, and, and it, but no one's buying it, no one knows about it? Well, it was all through the turkey project, you know, um, all the, those turkey farmers who raised turkeys for us for the first three years while we were still part of Slow Food. And by the way, all the profits of Heritage Food for the first three years went to Slow Food. Hmm. Um, so we went, the, they already had other breeds. And so, you know, and other animals growing on the farm. So we said, we'd love to, to, to help you move those because that's what you really need. And um, those far- um, those farmers already had certain breeds. And then the chefs, um, the first trip ever was Zach Allen from uh, Mario and Joe's Restaurants mm-hmm. in Vegas, Mark Ladner from Del Posto, Jason Denton, who at the time was the owner of Lupa, right. and Steve Connaughton, who at the time was the chef of Lupa. So uh, the four of us went to Kansas City and actually saw and uh, traveled to the farms. And we saw seven or eight breeds and we tasted a whole bunch of them. And they basically came up with the Red Waddle being the most interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Berkshire is the most prevalent of the heritage That's breed. Right. So it's the most constant. Um, you know, and since then we're, you know, remember these breeds take years and years to develop so that there's a steady supply of them. I mean, that's the Red Waddle was like a seven year project. And even to this day, we only have 40 of them a week. Um, and so now we're putting our efforts behind the Gloucester Old Spot, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, Gloucester, you know, Gloucester. Yes. Yeah, the Gloucester <laughs> pig, which is, I think, the best pig uh, variety for the milkiness of its fat. And um, so we're encouraging our farmers to buy breeding boars and sows so that they can start herds. And the tradition is you get one sow, uh, one boar for 15 sows. Mm-hmm. And then take it from there, right? Take it from there. <laughs> or let them it take goes. it from there. Let right? him go. <laughs> well, we're going to talk more about this project when we come back after a short break. And i got a couple of questions to ask you, too. Cool. Stay tuned. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine Through the bumps of dime in your prime Call, say beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were off. 
Okay, we are back with Patrick Martins, the founder of Slow Foods USA and Heritage Foods USA and Heritage Radio Network that you're listening to. And uh, Patrick, we were talking about uh, breeds and what makes a heritage breed. Um, and you said well, it's like an heirloom breed, but what's? But you were you were during the break you were talking more about um, about farmers. Mm-hmm. Producing food that for yeah well I guess what, what, what heritage breeds are like genetics created by farmers, not by corporations. I mean that does really seem to be the line. Like if you were to separate, like what's different about an Narragansett turkey mm-hmm. than Purdue's, you know, oven roasted turkey? Like what's mm-hmm. the difference? Is the the Narragansett was done from one farmer to another for farming reasons. The others were done from one corporate scientist to another corporate scientist for production, for value. production mm-hmm. and, and money. So mm-hmm. you know, it's just uh, I was trying to think. Uh, I was asked today uh, by a journalist what you know what is what makes it heritage, and it's like a purebred that's bred by farmers. You know, and they go back usually fifty to one hundred and twenty years. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and it's interesting because the and here we are all thinking about roasting our turkeys for Thanksgiving. Uh, it. It really does uh, have a different taste, and it and it roasts up differently, and it's and it's rich. And taste is better. I mean, you know, people think taste is an opinion, and I think it is it's true. Uh, it is somewhat of an opinion, but there's also a lot of fact there. Like a bad dish is a bad dish is a bad dish. It's, it, yeah, it's it's subjective up to a point. Yeah, exactly. As long as it's in the realm of quality, then there's a myriad of ways you can go. But there is a right and a wrong with food. And, uh, you know, I think what's important is to have people who are tasting be experts. I mean, if they're experts and they've had, uh, you know, 10,000 cheeses in their life, then they know which one's good and which one's bad or which ones are good and which ones are Mm -hmm. not so good. So I think these turkeys taste better. And to hear that these big companies claim that their birds taste better and that these birds taste tough, I mean, that's just absurd. They're wrong. No, and interestingly enough, uh, something that I've found over the years is that in comparison to a a regular industrial or commodity product um we'll call them turkey and a and a heritage breed in chickens turkeys and otherwise you know fresh grown on the farm you know free range fed properly you can feed a lot more people off of a lot less meat mm-hmm. it's rich you don't need as much to set you know the other right. ones you eat and eat and eat and you don't quite get satisfied you don't get that rich 
turkey taste that you know and filling mm-hmm. feeling that you get with a you know one of these heritage which breeds. is the same argument like the same journalist i was talking about earlier he's like you know so t- let's talk about the expense you know what how do you define like what the proper price is i'm like you know i like to compare it a little bit less than the movie everybody should spend a, per person if a family of five goes to a movie, then eating a good meal, which is special, like going to the movies, should be more or less that same price per person. Yeah. So a family of 10 should spend $100, $120 on, on something good. Like it's comparing it to movies is a good thing because mm. no one really rails against the cost of movies. That's right. That's right. Cost of popcorn, perhaps. Yes, that. Yes. <laughs> Outrageous. Right. right. But as a, you know, in, in looking at it uh, around the world, I think is for the industrial nations. We Americans spend less for each weekly market basket than any mm-hmm. other industrial nation in the in the world, and which the, is which is kind of absurd. The journalist was like, "So, uh, you know, what? Uh, why do they? Uh, how is that price artificially low? You know, or you know, because you say that the ninety nine cent turkey is an artificially low price. What goes on? What market mechanisms go on to make?" that and artificially low i was like god under the umbrella of greed it could be anything Mm. they could be trying to break the back of a competing business Mm -hmm. they could be trying to break the back of the union of farmers they could be you know finding out a new way to cram more turkeys into a pen like who knows i'm like i can't get into the reasons why but it is an artificially low price to pretend it's not would also be you know playing you can play with uh, what did tip o'neill say you can make up you can make up opinions but not facts or something like that i mean i forget what i, it I, is. I don't know the quote i mean yeah. if you if you had it right maybe Sorry. i'd remember it we can always <laughs> go back know. to the editing board. <laughs> right um well because i was i was reading a uh a story about one of henry VIII's dinners and someone was trying to recreate it and going with the shopping uh, shopping basket reminded me of it with the shopping cart trying to you know go around and buy everything that you know he would need for the center of course you wouldn't you'd need like 50 shopping carts or more you know <laughs> wouldn't be able to push them um and i was thinking yeah and they said well of course the the supermarket didn't have any swans or peacocks now here's a point okay bringing back it, of course, that's we in America didn't eat swans and peacocks as much as that. Well, in England, they did. They were plentiful. Mm-hmm. But some of these odder types of birds or animals that were eaten years ago, they just sort of fell off the map. Um, so we're talking only about those that are part of our common vocabulary of, of food that we eat. And that's the only ones that are concerned. Swans and peacocks, I know, is stretching it a little bit. But <laughs> I just thought it was kind of interesting. You know, that, I'm surprised uh, no one ate seagulls. I guess yeah. they must taste very bad. They're very uh, plentiful. Yeah. I mean, pigeons certainly. Pigeons are certainly a food that's eaten, and it's. You know. I'm surprised how large they are in England. The wood pigeon is that mm. what they call it? They live in trees. Actually, a, a is that is a wood pigeons. wood pigeon different than a woodcock? I'm not sure. Hmm. Okay. Because they do eat woodcock. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it's interesting to note that uh, people people are often afraid of. You know, like, well, I won't know how to cook these special types of, of, you know, turkeys or pork or whatever. And in fact, uh, a listener, I think uh, there was a listener who emailed into the radio network wondering, mm-hmm. what's the difference? You know, how should I cook it and should it be brined and what should what should happen? And- it's funny. I, I work at the butcher shop, the Heritage Meat Shop on Thursdays. and oh, That's right. You opened a bricks and mortar place here in New York City at Essex Market. Right. Essex Market. And uh, it's so funny. I think people really misunderstand uh, um, or, or, or put too much 
thought into how they're going to prepare these foods. Like, you know, they'll get a chicken from us or some steak or a turkey or a goose. And they're like, oh, no, I have to get all this stuff. I'm like, dude, just put it in the oven. That's it. You don't, you can rinse it with water, put a little salt, put it in the oven. That's it. It'll come out so juicy and rich. And then put your effort into a sauce, you know, or or something light that you dip in it. But the thing itself, you, it's actually fast food. I mean, I ate a eight pound goose for, you know, it took me no effort. I took it out of the car bag, rinsed it with water, put salt on it, put in the oven. And 40 minutes later, we were eating like at the Peking duck house, you know, shaving off the little parts of the goose breast, uh, Mm. you know, and, and, and rolling it into a sandwich. I mean, it was succulent. And, um, I just think that uh, people, there's this great restaurant, Jonathan Justice, um, he opened it right next to the slaughterhouse that we use primarily. And he opened it in large part because he had access to all this fantastic meat at Paradise Locker Meats. Anyway, it was always a very high-end restaurant and everything was so, you know, tortured, but also very good. Mm -hmm. And now he's finally opened a a segment of his restaurant, uh, which uh, is much simpler food, like chicken fingers and stuff, you know, still with technique and all that stuff, but it was packed. Mm. I was like, this is the best meal I've ever had here. And I think the same holds true. You know, people should stick to their wheelhouse, if they right. would take a bad piece of meat and put it like that, then with the greatest piece of meat, you still do that same thing. Do the thing. same thing and taste the difference. You don't need to make some prune compote and a souffle. I mean, it just gets to be too much, and it increases the chance that you won't taste the meat. Right. Well, I uh, I hope that your turkey suppliers are on the ball and uh, can get everybody their turkeys on time for Thanksgiving. And... I hope they can, too. Andrea, if you're <laughs> listening, you should not be listening. <laughs> Right. And I encourage people to uh, you know, to try some. Support the radio network. Yes, and, financially and, <laughs> and with your listenership. Right. And uh, check out HeritageFoodsUSA.com. You don't have to go to the butcher shop. If you're not in New York City, don't worry about it. You can go to HeritageFoodsUSA.com. But if you're in New York City, stop by the Essex Market and check them out. And you can maybe catch Patrick and talk to him, too. Ben Desir. And uh, Linda, I want you to say, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Yours has always been one of the top 28 shows on the network, in my oh. opinion. Just kidding. There's only 28. <laughs> I'm just teasing. That's it pretty up. good. You have brought in more big-time guests, because I love all these young kids, and I see them, but then there's also the certain powerhouse people yeah. in the food world who've been doing it for 10 years or longer. You know, they don't do blogs. They actually do publications. And We try you, to lend a little credibility. You, you know? brought them all on. <laughs> I mean, yes, you've really lent us a lot of credibility, and I, and I hope people appreciate that and that they listen to your show. Well, I thank you for the compliment, and it's uh, it right back at you because it's a, a love fest here today. Yes. I wouldn't be sitting here if it weren't for you, and, and your and and your whole vision of of what's happening. You are changing America. You oh really my are. God! And this and is, look who's out there, Mitchell Davis, the vice president of the James Beard Foundation. He does this show. That's and pretty he's cool. Next, so don't so no. Or if you don't, if it's not next, not next, you can log on anytime. Yes. And, <laughs> <laughs> right. So Patrick, thank thanks you so for much. having me. I hope me. people have learned a bit about Heritage Radio Network and Heritage Foods USA. And join us again on A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio.